yes i'm in my 70s okay so that means that I've, I've had a long life but nearly all of that life has been spent worrying about sustainability what we call sustainability i mean you know right from the 60s and uh, and a lot of that has involved energy we are currently living through an energy crisis but what actually is an energy crisis what does it mean for our future and what's being done to help us get through it we speak with researcher, activist, and climate change communicator, Peter Harper, who has spent his entire life thinking about these questions. We also speak with Elry Winnett Selig, Managing Director and Head of Environmental, Social and Governance for Cities Markets Business, to understand what's currently being done and what still could be done to resolve this crisis. Linnaean. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 Linnaean Society of London. Hi, Peter. So, can you please explain what the energy crisis actually is? Because I think prior to my understanding now, we might have thought the energy crisis was uh, the fact that we were going to run out of resources. But actually, there's a is a different kind of crisis that we're facing with energy. Energy is, is, is a cornerstone of modern society. You can't run it without energy. And that was one of the key enablers in the, um, the Industrial Revolution, is suddenly to discover um, you know, so almost unlimited sources of energy in the form of fossil fuels. And that allowed things to happen. Now, because this stuff had been accumulating for millions of years, you know, hundreds of millions of years, um, there was a lot of it and it was pretty easy to get hold of and it was very cheap and so once we got the got the trick of it you know we just pulled the stuff out and it was easy peasy and so i think we started to take it for granted that you could just have as much of this as you wanted it, it's a bit different now because at first when i first became in, involved in it i thought the, the problem is going to be the running out of fossil fuels we, we're using it so fast we're running out at least of the easy bits and now, I don't think that's the case. I think there's still stacks of it there that we could get if we wanted to. But now the problem is climate change. So, uh, and, and that's very urgent and very serious. So that's, 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 that's changed the whole calculus about how things operate. Hi, my name is Elry Winnett-Seelig. Um, I'm head of ESG for the markets business at City. But in this podcast, I'm going to be speaking in my private capacity as a fellow of the Linnaean Society. So how do you understand and define the energy crisis? Yeah, you know, the energy crisis, it's, it's a really loaded term, actually. Um, and it lumps together, the way I think about it, I sort of deconstructed into three main issues. The first one is around energy accessibility. So do you have access to power and transport fuels on a consistent basis? Uh, the second issue is around energy availability. So when you go to turn on the light, is there power? Or do you have rolling brownouts or even blackouts? The third thing is energy affordability. So can you afford as a percentage of your monthly income to pay for energy for heating, cooking, and lighting, those three basic um, services? So in this case, we're referring to the global energy crisis because these issues have come to the fore in the current environment. And they're felt in one form or another or a constellation of those um, pretty much around the world right now. Um, and quite frankly, it's important uh, because it has real world implications. 
It impacts an individual's health, their education. I mean, being able to do your homework at night. It impacts your well-being, the concern that you have for being able to pay your bills. But it also has real-world impacts in terms of the economy and growth and inflation and those knock-on effects that are hard to extract an economy from. And it also has potentially, realistically, real-world impacts in achieving net zero. So as we burn more of the cheapest and most readily available fuels like coal, we're falling further behind on meeting our net zero obligations and targets. Well, at the beginning, many of us in the green movement thought that behavior change is good for people. You know, it's good. It's much better. <laughs> if you uh, ride a bike instead of go by car, you know, it makes you fit and, and also it's cheaper, less impact, et cetera, et cetera. So that's good. And we could see that uh, if that kind of behavior change became very widespread, then you would naturally get a reduction in environmental impact. And so it's a, it's it's all good. Great. Well, that was 50 years ago, and it's 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 been very ineffective. I mean, I think you know, as a small demographic, you might say 10 or 15 percent of greenies. Okay, they're prepared to do all this behavior change stuff. They don't mind, but uh, everybody else doesn't care. So, meantime, we've only got a very short window of opportunity to act. So, I've, I've just thought, okay, we'll stuff that. We just can't keep going on about that. It hasn't worked. Now we've got to do the big top-down stuff which people don't really notice very much. I mean, you know, a big offshore wind farm, who knows it's there? Who cares? You know, as long as the electricity is coming out of the socket, you know, you don't know whether where it's come from. You don't care. It's fine. So what I'm interested in, big stuff that people don't notice, just shrug your shoulders and say, OK, well, you guys get on with it, you know, and, and that's that's fine. So it's it's in a way, it's a little bit elitist because, you know, it means engineers and politicians and economists all getting together and sort of organizing these big scale things but that's what we're going to do what do you think from your experience are the key top-down actions that need to be taken to have a real world impact on the energy consumption and climate change yeah, you know, I think that's one of the really important things. I mean, there's a lot of focus right now on what we can do as individuals to manage our our expenses, to to manage our our energy costs. But the reality is, we also need that incredible leadership from from sovereigns, from from governments. I think the most important thing long term is that we need a price on carbon. Um, so carbon emissions are what we refer to as sort of an externality. Um, it's called an externality in econ in economics. So it's something that's not not really priced in systematically to the cost of production. And governments have various tools to price carbon. They can have a carbon tax, they can have a cap and trade or a system in terms of, of carbon emissions allowances. Um, they can have a carbon border tax, um, but that pricing of carbon becomes really critical, particularly for someone like me sitting in a financial market seat. I think the second thing is governments and multilateral agencies really need to think very strategically, let's say, about how they can facilitate private investment in energy transition. So just because something's green doesn't mean that it isn't risky or that it's going to meet the investment rules that our regulators impose on banks or asset managers, investors, basically insurers. Um, and so 
We need tranches of capital to help us de-risk projects, to be able to invest in those projects. So that de-risking is a really critical role that governments will have along with pricing carbon. Um, I think the other thing is they really need to focus on leadership to address the climate crisis as well as the energy crisis. That's about communication, so frequent and clear communication about the government's priorities and how they're addressing something. They need to educate people about what we can do as individuals um, and what the what the alternatives are. Um, and it goes back to facilitating energy or facilitating the, all of us to address the climate crisis. And I think the third thing that governments really have to do is really help us with a just transition. I mean, obviously we're in the middle of COP27 right now. Um, so one of the key issues that made it onto the agenda is the idea of loss and damage and who will basically underwrite loss and damage. But it's also, how are we going to finance particularly emerging economies and how are we going to support the communities to make sure that we have a just transition, not just that we are addressing climate change. You bring up COP27. Do you think that there is the sharing of knowledge, resources and skills that is happening? And um, what, what does this look like? So yes, it's absolutely happening. And it's happening in a way that I haven't seen that information sharing across government, civil society, regulation, private sector. It's happening in a way that I've never experienced sitting in in, in finance or even sitting in, in my roles that I've had in conservation. So it's happening very organically, but very systematically. I mean, look at 40,000 people at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh right now that represents basically all of those stakeholders. But with that, I'm also concerned about the pace of that change and that knowledge sharing. I mean, the reality is transition is really difficult. We were jubilant after COP26. I mean, realistically, by I think the end of first quarter, 90% of the global economy had made a net zero commitment. But transitioning the global economy from being carbon-based, from fossil fuel-based to being renewable or low carbon is really difficult. And it's increasingly difficult because we're in the middle of a downturn in economic growth. We're reversing a decade of quantitative easing, so cheap money isn't going to be available, and we have an energy crisis. So that knowledge sharing is happening, but we need to shift from knowledge sharing, values alignment to action. And that's what I'm really hoping to see more of in COP27. And you talk about the difficulty in changing from a carbon-based fuel system to renewables. What are the major considerations that we need in regards to making this change? Well, let me answer that question just in terms of power rather than thinking about transport fuels and, and chemicals and industrial metals and so on. Um, so we'll talk about power, renewables. Um, we And I want to contextualize that in saying or just reminding everyone that power grids are very local. So where you can transport coal from South Africa to the UK or to the US or to the Philippines, the reality is you don't move power the same way. So you look up in the sky and you see power cables or in some areas they're buried. So it's point to point. So we don't really transport power at scale. We don't have batteries. I mean, you have AA batteries, you have C batteries, but we don't have batteries at scale to move power around. 
So when we look at the role that renewables will play, we start with what's called the energy stack. So in any market, in any grid, the energy stack is basically how we model power supply and demand for any given grid. So those lines that you look up and see. So in developed traded markets, um, so let's just say the UK, we model power in five minute increments, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And I think of them, or I try to explain them, almost like sedimentary layers of power sources, coal, natural gas, nuclear, hydro, solar, offshore wind, and so on. So what is the energy stack on a five minute increment that will give you the supply of power to meet the demand? So the assumption when we do those that modeling is that those patterns of behavior on how you and I, when we're going to turn on our laundry or, or, or wash our clothes or boil the kettle, um, when companies are going to ramp up production because it's eight o'clock in the morning, those, those are largely consistent and that you're pretty aware of new mega projects that may create a demand disruption for power or new supplies of power. So that's how we think about that modeling. When we think about renewables, we look to see what pieces of that energy stack can be substituted out. Um, so the biggest issue that we have with renewables or with power is you need that background power, what we call baseload power, that constant amount that you always have to have. The reality is it's difficult for renewables in, unless you get the right mix of renewables, solar during the day, wind at night, getting that mix right so that you can use renewables for baseload power or peaking power when everybody turns on their kettle in the middle of halftime at the Football World Cup. That kind of thing, that peaking and baseload is difficult for renewables right now. So it's getting the right mix of those renewables. It's understanding how climate change may impact the production from those renewable sources. And it's really thinking about how we can distribute those grids need to be smart. They need to be able to pull that power in at the right time. And we need to think about how we're going to store those renewable power, that renewable power. And then of course, what we can't do is we can't ignore the price of that power because energy has to be affordable, not just accessible. The UK economy as a whole is decarbonizing pretty fast by historical standards it is. And that is mostly led by the energy sector and remember that if energy is decarbonizing, it feeds into the whole of the rest of the economy. So, you know, a lot of the, the energy is, is embodied in other things. So what, whatever's happening all over the economy is decarbonizing because energy is decarbonizing. And la that's largely the power sector. Uh, we are getting more efficient. We're using less energy per unit of GDP. And these high prices will help that a lot. If you get loads and loads of money for a unit of electricity then you know your wind farm is is fine it's very well placed and and it means that the the financial calculations about you know what to invest uh, are, are completely different so suddenly it makes a lot of sense to put sodding great wind farm outside aberdeen somewhere because you can bet that the prices are going to remain pretty high the topic of price the the current price signal uh, what is it actually telling us so again there's different kinds of energy there's diesel gasoline crude oil there's power like renewables thermal coal and so on so they're not not all power is 
not all energy is created equal and it's used for different reasons. Um, but let's just say, let's focus on the easiest ones in terms of price signals. Um, in, so you get a price signal because of something that we call independent price discovery. So that unit of power or that unit of energy is traded on a hub or in a market um, under a certain specification, so a certain kind of contract like Brent crude versus WTI. So that idea of a price signal comes from what is the price that the market is willing to pay for that unit of energy. And I make that really, I'm very trying to be very specific about that because in many parts of the world, the governments through fiat, they fix the price of energy because they want to make sure that it is affordable for their population. But generally, when we think about those listed liquid markets and WTI and, and, and certain power hubs, um, that independent price discovery right now is sending a signal that there is um, there is an undersupply for the demand. There's a few reasons for that. But I think it starts with what is a fair price for power um, or transport fuels or any other energy. Um, that's really debatable because on some level, you're also trying to send a signal to um, conserve power, to use, to be more efficient with the power that you use. But let's just ignore that price signal and say where the prices are right now is too high. Um, I would say a second caveat is this point was always going to happen in some ways because for the last 25 years, we have underinvested in the distribution and grid capacity to deliver renewables at scale. We need a lot of investment in the infrastructure in most parts of the world. We have also underinvested in developing the technology to supply baseload power and stabilize that availability. So that innovation that we need um, has, has been lacking. And quite frankly, for the last five years or so, the price signals for the market were, has, have made us underinvest in developing existing proven but undeveloped fossil fuel reserves. Um, so those price signals were saying climate change, we're all addressing climate change. We're, um, we are, we've made a net zero commitment. So fossil fuels will be a stranded asset. But the reality is the fossil fuels, while we have them on the global balance sheet, they aren't necessarily getting to the right markets for a variety of geopolitical, physical reasons. Um, so those signals are basically saying that the marginal cost of power is more expensive. So investment in the infrastructure and the innovation that we need to facilitate transition to a low economy, be low carbon economy becomes more economic. And I'm gonna add something to that politically, it's also a lot more palatable because we have people who are concerned about climate risk being aligned with people who are as concerned about energy security. So you've got the market signal that says invest in the infrastructure and the innovation that we need for a low carbon economy. And you have the political motivation and alignment that hopefully will deliver that. So what you're saying is will these high prices we're experiencing at the moment actually help with decarbonizing? I absolutely think that it is um, accelerating transition in many of our markets.
uh, Britain and Ireland, of course, uh, we're very well placed for wind power. You know, we've got huge offshore resources there. So as some people said, we're the Saudi Arabia of wind, you know, which we could export into the European grids. If you look at the the renewable resources available throughout Europe, you find that actually there's quite a lot of different resources and they're, they're, they're often complementary to each other. So obviously, you know, the north of Europe produces more wind in the winter um, which could export to the south. The south produces more so sun energy in the summer, you know, could, could export to the north. There are lots of parts of Europe that have fantastic hydro resources. Um, there are lots that have biomass resources. There are lots that have geothermal resources. All these things could be put into the European grid and, and we could move things around. In regards to renewable energy, is it cheaper to invest in producing renewable energy? And, and if so, why is this not being done and why would any nation choose to invest in fossil fuels? So is it cheaper to invest and produce renewable energy? Those are two different issues. Remember, just because something's green doesn't mean that it isn't risky. So the investment hypothesis doesn't necessarily mean that it's not risky and therefore more expensive. You might not, you might have an idea for a wind farm in East Anglia, but the reality, and you've spent a lot of money, but it never gets permissioned. So it can be very expensive to develop these projects. Is it cheaper to produce renewable, renewable, renewable energy? It depends on the technology, but some technologies, proven technologies like onshore solar, well, onshore wind and solar, yeah, I mean, the sun is free, wind is free. Um, but it depends really very much on the technology and the location. Um, why isn't it being done? I think it depends on the energy stack. I mentioned that before that, like what is the energy mix that you need on any given grid, on any distribution point? And that's going to really influence the role renewables will play um, and whether or not they are competitive and whether they fill that piece of the of, of the energy stack. In most cases, renewables, onshore wind and solar are peri passu or less expensive than more conventional fossil fuels. And certainly over time, that's what they've seen, uh, particularly once you include um, insurance. Um, but utility scale renewables also require a heavy investment in the infrastructure of delivery, um, particularly if you're going to use it for that base load or peaking capacity. So I think that's one of the reasons that it might not be done as frequently. Um, some energy also requires, um, is difficult to transport or there are industries that require high heat. So those don't necessarily lend themselves to renewables at this point. Um, one thing that's really interesting though is, I mean, we talk a lot about renewables and we talk about that's the, really the generation side, like we need more power. But one of the things that I would like governments, well, everyone to, to focus more on is um, managing demand. So it's incentivizing insulation for homes. It's incentivizing use of non-peak demand, do your laundry at 11 p.m. Invest, investments in public transportation, in, in ways that we can reduce demand overall, rather than at just continuing to add more power.
Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 London.